This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by Relentless, Gospel Courage in a Complex Culture, a special pre-conference hosted by the ERLC and the Gospel Coalition at the 2017 TGC Conference. Find out more at erlc.com slash events. How does our work on Monday connect with our worship on Sunday? Have you ever thought about that? It seems like these two worlds are often diametrically opposed to each other. Well, today on the program, I'm honored to have Dr. Jim Hamilton, who is Professor of Biblical Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a respected theologian and the author of several books, including God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, A Biblical Theology, uh, God's Indwelling Presence, The Ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments. We're here to talk about his brand new book, Work on Our Labor in the Lord, And we're going to ask him, how should Christians think about their work? And as parents, how should we train our kids to think about work? Uh, He's going to answer all these questions and more. I know you'll enjoy uh, this conversation, a very important topic. Let's join our conversation with Dr. Jim Hamilton. Dr. Jim Hamilton from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and... uh, author of this great new book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So you've written quite a number of books, particularly on biblical theology and some other really important issues. So what motivated you to write this book uh, about work? Well, several things uh, came together, one of which was, uh, what really prompted it was an invitation from the guys editing the series, Miles Van Pelt and Dane Ortland. They invited me to contribute to the series and asked me what topic I would like to write on. And actually, I first proposed the topic of rest, and it turned out that they had already lined up Graham Goldsworthy, who's now retired, to write a book on rest. So then I proposed the book on work, and they said, great, the retired guy will write on rest, and then the guy that's still working will write on work. (laughs) So that's the way it that's the way it sort of came together. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about your work, and particularly here, is the way that you you frame work as really an act of worship. And and I'm not sure a lot of modern Christians really think of their work as a as an act of worship. Why do you think that is? Well, there's several factors. One of them is that we do live in a world that's been subjected to futility. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, clearly stated in Romans 8. I think it's also the, one of the driving concepts in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, what's particularly explored, I think, in, in Ecclesiastes is the way that the fact that we're going to die makes it so that our work seems to be futile and vain and meaningless, uh, because there's this termination point. And um, in this is where the the biblical theological aspect of thinking about work, putting it into the context of the broader Christian story, which holds that death is not the end, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead, and life in a new heavens and new earth, and it's that that resurrection hope that causes us to see our work as not vain and meaningless and futile, but actually as having value. And, um, And this is exactly what Paul says at the end of the chapter on on resurrection, First Corinthians 15, where he get, he's, he's argued for the resurrection throughout this chapter, and then he gets to the end, and he says, Therefore, uh, be steadfast, immovable, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's, it's precisely because of 
what he's been teaching throughout the chapter, the resurrection. It's really about a, a more robust doctrine of creation, isn't it? That is, that is definitely true as well. Um, and seeing that, that work is not introduced with God's words of judgment in response to human sin, work was actually given to the man and the woman prior to the fall. They had tasks to do. And so this, just as you say, a robust doctrine of creation helps us to see that work itself is not the curse. It's the, uh, their words of judgment that make our work more difficult. But again, putting it in the context of the beginning of the Christian story and the end of the Christian story, helps us to think more biblically about about the work that we're given to do. So you are not only a professor at one of the, the leading seminaries in the world, but also a local church pastor. And so I guess I have a two-part question. One, as you see young seminarians come to study, do you think that their view of work is changing from previous generations? Are, are you encouraged by what you're seeing in terms of their view of work, work ethic. And I guess the second part of that is, uh, as a pastor, how do you kind of apply this in preaching and really encouraging the lay people in your church? I'll take the second one first. Um, actually, the once I had agreed with Miles Van Pelt and Dane Ortland that I was going to uh, pursue this brief biblical theological study of work, the first thing I did was I preached a three-part series on work at Kenwood Baptist Church. Actually, it was a four-part series, so it went through, you know, work at creation, work after the fall, work um, after the redemption that Christ has accomplished, and then Mm -hmm. work in the new heavens and new earth. And so I did these four sermons and just tried to help people to place their labor um, against the broader biblical backdrop, and then help them to see the way that Paul's instructions for work, and really everything said about work in the Bible— uh, is informed by this broader story. Uh, and then, there, you know, there are just ongoing conversations. I mean, just, just this week, uh, there's a, a brother in our church who was laid off from his job, and he is, uh, praise God, the Lord has given him grace to understand himself um, in the context of the Bible's instructions and stories and so forth. And, and so he's walking in faith as he seeks the next way that the Lord is going to to provide for him and his family. So we're just really trying to help people live in light of the scriptures and help people to embrace the Bible's perspective on every aspect of our lives, including work. And then the, the other part of your question, we are very blessed at, at Southern Seminary to get people who have been, they've experienced the new birth, and they're experiencing the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And so the vast majority of our students um, are are inclined to work at their studies with all their hearts, as for the Lord and not for men. Our culture, however, I think, is is cultivating sloth in new ways. And, and so, you know, if as, as you look at Genesis one and two, I think it's our, I think you can make the case that Adam's responsibility is to protect the garden. He's to work it and keep it. He's to provide out of his work, and then he's to lead the woman who's given there, given to him there in the garden. So he's to to protect, provide, and lead. And um, in our culture, video games and pornography have so many young men doing the opposite of those things. So young men are not leading, they're not protecting, 
they're not providing, they're not working, they're not getting married, they're not fathering children, they're not husbanding a wife, Mm -hmm. and they're just satisfying themselves through porn and video games. And uh, that can create patterns of indolence and laziness and selfishness, and those patterns can be difficult to overcome. So, you know, I do have conversations with students that are trying to break out of of old patterns that really are the ways of the world, that these are the things that the culture is trying to ensnare young men with, and and these are the things that we're trying not to be conformed to the image of this world as we try to put off the old man and put on the new, uh, particularly as it relates to leading, protecting, and providing. You know, if you're thinking about a biblical theology of work, I mean, for one, it seems like pastors really need to be faithful to preach about a, a faithful and a good theology of work. I think of my dad. You know, my dad was a, was a faithful churchman. Uh, he's a plumber, and uh, he was faithful to the church his whole life. But I always felt that some of the theology growing up that because he wasn't a pastor or a missionary mm-hmm. or a worship leader or a youth pastor, that he was kind of, um, you know, kind of second class. Uh, there really yeah. wasn't, you know, it, there was kind of the affirmation, okay, yeah, you can tithe and you can have opportunities to evangelize and it's good to provide for your family, but there really wasn't given the significance of, of, of the actual work. So I guess my question is, how, can, how would you encourage pastors to really preach faithfully on this topic? Yes, that's a, that's a great question, and you're putting your finger on something that's real, I think, in our evangelical subculture where, you know, if you're really going to serve the Lord, you're going to go to an unreached people group, and then if you want to serve Him but maybe not be so radical, you, you go to the mission field or you, you be a pastor here at home. And, um, I, you know, we don't want to take anything away from the fact, the reality, that there are people that need to hear the gospel and churches need pastors, but we also want to recognize that God has built different people to do different things, and God has gifted uh, people in different ways. And and as we, if we'll teach the Scriptures in their fullness, if we'll proclaim the whole counsel of God, then we can see things like, you know, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, um, He gave them a task, and that task had to do with, as as they're made in the image and likeness of God, that task has to do with, with making God known, but not through doing things like pastoring or frontline missions. Their task in their place and their time is to be fruitful and multiply. It's the first thing God tells them to do, and then fill the earth and subdue it. And I think that the idea is, by being fruitful and multiplying, they will be um, bringing more people into the world who are made in the image and likeness of God, and then by filling the earth, God's character is going to be reflected through their descendants in all the world, and then as they subdue the earth and have dominion over the animals, that's the order of commands given there, God's nature, His righteousness, His holiness, His love, His glory is going to fill the, fill the earth as, as the waters cover the seas. Uh, what we, what we want to do is we want to say, um, what has God called me to do to promote the understanding and knowledge of His character? And some of us are called to do that through preaching and teaching or through going and planting churches in places where the gospel is not yet gone. Others of us are called to do that uh, in a high-rise office building or as we 
as we promote the gospel through the way that we relate to people going into their homes to fix their plumbing. Um, and, and I would argue that every, every calling we experience can be connected to um, subduing the earth and exercising dominion over the animals. Even things like medicine or counseling, all these things can be traced back to helping people to flourish so that they can carry out God's purposes in the world so that they can make God's character known. What are some ways that pastors can really come alongside the people in the church to kind of affirm them in their vocation? I know that still for many working Christians, which is, you know, most of the church is, is not made up of professional Christians that, that work for Christian ministries, but of just uh, right. ordinary lay people that are going out uh, in their vocations and working. Uh, right. So what can pastors do to come alongside Christians to affirm them in their vocations and, and help them see that what they're doing really does have uh, eternal significance? Well, I think um, one thing that we can do, that we ought to do as pastors, is listen to people and understand uh, what their challenges are, and then and then try to try to help them see how following Christ in those situations. Trying to help people understand what that looks like, and um, you know, at a certain level, I can remember hearing um, Mark Dever and Tim Keller having a conversation about work, and Dever said something like, um, how should a Christian work? And, and Keller's reply was, well, if he's an airline pilot, the first thing he needs to do is land the plane. So, <laughs> so you know, there's something really good about good point. affirming. You need to do your job, and you need to do it well, and if, you know, if you're a pilot, you need to keep the people on your plane safe. That's your responsibility. And then there's another component of this where I think we can promote Christ-likeness in the sense of, you know, Jesus called his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. And that doesn't mean that we're going to go to the cross and be crucified to propitiate God's wrath uh, for others in the way that Jesus did. It does mean that we have the opportunity to lay down our lives on behalf of other people, uh, seeking their benefit in the way that Jesus did. So, in other words, we're not we're not achieving atonement like Jesus did, but we are following, you know, Peter says he left us an example that we should follow in his steps by suffering for doing what is good. And here, um, this is another story that I heard uh, Tim Keller tell. He, he said that he was greeting people at the end of a worship service, and he met a woman who was a first-time visitor to their church, and he asked her, you know, why did you come to Redeemer this morning? And and her reply was um, something like, well, it's a long story. And Keller says, well, I've got time. And so she begins to tell this story about how she had made a mistake at work that should have cost her her job. And she was called in by her boss, who knew that she was responsible for this mistake. And then to her surprise, her boss began to explain that he, he could see the way that things were working, the way that things were going. He could see that if the responsibility for this mistake was placed on her shoulders, it would terminate her time with the company, that, that her standing with the company could not sustain the mistake that had been made. And then he went on to explain that his standing with the company could sustain this mistake. And so he, he then told her, I'm going to take responsibility. I know this is your responsibility, 
but I'm going to take the blame for this. And she was shocked, and um, she, she asked him, why are you doing this? And his reply was, because I'm a follower of Jesus, and when I had a debt that was beyond anything that I could have ever paid, he paid it for me. And when I had incurred a penalty that was too big for me to bear, uh, he bore that curse in my place. And she said her next question was, where do you go to church? And and then she explained to Tim Keller, that's why I'm here at Redeemer this morning. And so, you know, there are just all kinds of ways for Christians to live out the gospel, even volunteering for the unpleasant job so that other guys that you work with or other gals that you work with don't have to do that job. Um, there are all kinds of ways that we can lay down our lives for other people uh, to, to seek to benefit them and to, to manifest the love of Christ in the workplace. Every day it seems we're overwhelmed with news that scrolls across our timelines. How do we react? How do we talk about it with our kids? What should the church do? Join us at a special ERLC pre-conference at the 2017 Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. This special pre-conference will feature Russell Moore, Jen Wilkin, Crawford Loritz, Nancy Guthrie, Kevin DeYoung, Jackie Hill Perry, Sam Albury, and many others. Check out the link at ERLC.com events. Get your ticket now for $25 and get an extra $5 off if you use the coupon code WAYHOME. That's WAYHOME in all caps. We'd love to see you in Indianapolis. I want to ask you too, uh, for parents, uh, one of the things I think is not talked about enough when we're talking about raising our kids in the Lord is raising our kids with a good work ethic and Mm -hmm. really teaching them that work is good and how to work and and kind of help shaping their callings. What advice would you give parents uh, as as they think about this issue with their kids? Well, um, First thing I want to say is I am no expert on this front. We are in this battle right now, and um, I think there, there seems to be a, a a trend that you can you can see in birth orders where maybe the firstborn is really a go getter, and then maybe the secondborn is similar. But then once you get down to the middle or last child, um, you're you're into an area where somebody is is maybe saying, "Hey, my older siblings are really really good." And so I'm not even going to try to excel at what they're doing. And I think that what we want to do is we want to, we want to obey Deuteronomy 6, which instructs us to teach the scriptures diligently to our children and talk about them. So what we're trying to do is, is teach the tr- truth of the scriptures and then, and then have conversations about the meaning of the scriptures and then apply those things to whatever we're doing, whether it's, it's a math problem or, or sports. And, you know, we've got, we've got some kids that we don't have to tell them to persevere in their math and work as hard, work with all their heart as for the Lord, not for men. We've got other kids that, that we need to teach them the, the lesson that they need to persevere to the end 
and they need to cultiv- cultivate a habit and a character of of considering this trial or this this difficulty pure joy and they need to keep working on that math problem and finishing that math and developing the mental toughness and the the, the Christian character of perseverance uh, in doing what is good is the same thing that's going to keep them from giving up on their, their math homework, and it's the same thing that's going to keep them from uh, getting frustrated if they, if they muff a ground ball and if, or if they miss a beautiful pitch to hit. You know, they, what they need to do is they need to get their mind right, and they need to get back in the batter's box, and they need to look for the next pitch to hit. Um, they need to make the next play. They need to do the next thing. And, and so we're just trying to cultivate this um, character of persevering and considering the difficulties joy and um, calling on the Lord for help when we don't feel like doing these, these kinds of things. I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing some problems related to 21st century technology that might be unique challenges with regards to work. Uh, that we might not have faced in other generations. I'm thinking just uh, sometimes laziness is sort of masked in other forms uh, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Uh, added you busyness know, or connectivity. Yeah, recently I listened to an Econ Talk podcast with a University of Chicago economist named Eric Hurst. And uh, this guy, Eric Hurst, was talking about young men between the ages of 21 and 30 who are less educated. So these are guys that don't have a college degree. And Hurst, as Eric Hurst relayed these statistics to the host of the Econ Talk podcast, uh, the host said, I don't believe you. That is unbelievable to me. And Hurst said, well, I'm sorry. I know this is shocking and disappointing, but I can show you the data. And the data show that almost 20%, 18% of, of men in this category, and this is this cuts across you know, ethnicities, racial characteristics, um, almost 20% of lower educated, no college degree, young men between the ages of 21 and 30 have not worked in the last year, are not seeking employment, are not married, are not, you know, fathering children. So they're unmarried, unworking, no kids, living with a parent, and yet they have a very high happiness index. And the happiness comes from the fact that they're online all the time, either with video games or pornography. And it's remarkable how this University of Chicago economist, Eric Hurst, he had a very simple prescription for this. He said what needs to happen in these young men's lives is the what he called private uh, subsidies or the private transfers need to stop. What he means is the parents need to stop funding these young men's lives. I mean, it's almost like the guy, this University of Chicago economist was quoting the Apostle Paul, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Uh, Don't feed this guy, you know. Make it where he's got to go out and he's got to get a job and he's got to provide so that he won't steal, but he'll have something to share with people who are in need. And um, so, yes, I do think that we are facing unique challenges in our culture where the access to to wealth and then to diversionary forms of entertainment is unprecedented. And it does seem to be creating a situation where many, many young men in our culture are, are just not doing anything. 
at least not anything productive. Mm. Well, this is a really good book, a good resource that uh, I encourage churches to get and put in the hands of their people. Uh, it's really accessible and something that you know pastors or leaders can can give out to lay people, can maybe use as a basis for a, a series or small group study. Thank you for writing this, and uh, thank you for joining the podcast today. I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Hey, can I throw one, one, one last thing in here? You absolutely can. Please do. Um, I just want to draw attention to the way that in Genesis 128, um, when God blesses the man and the woman, he first tells them to be fruitful and multiply, which implies the marriage thing that we're going to see in Genesis 2. And then he tells them to fill the earth, which implies they're going to need to parent these kids so that they have the kind of character necessary to reflect God's character in creation, and then um, to have dominion over the animals. And so there's a beautiful harmony and symbiosis between marriage and parenting and the task that God has given um, to the the man and the woman, and that same harmony um, between marriage, family, and work, marriage, parenting, and work, can be seen in, in places like the Blessings of the Covenant, where, um, you, you know, if you, if you keep the covenant, Moses says in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, uh, your, your wife's going to bear children, and you're going to eat the fruit of the land, the fruit of your labor, and your children are going to have long lives in the land. And then you see it in places like this celebration of the, the Blessed Man in Psalm 128, a man who's, who is going to eat the fruit of the labor of his hands, and, and his wife is going to be like a fruitful vine at his table, and his children are going to be like olive shoots around the table. And, and so what the Bible is giving us is a picture of the good life, and it's a picture of a man and his wife who are having children together, and they're working, and they're enjoying the fruits of their labor. And, um, you know, the, the book of Ecclesiastes adds to all of this. There's nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy your work. Uh, so I think these are the kinds of things that we want to we want to commend to people, and these are the values that we want to uphold. So thanks for letting me throw that in at the end. Sorry to. No, that's great. That's really good. I, I appreciate that, and uh, just thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Way Home podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on DanielDarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.